with somebody who's very important to all of us who care about our um, historic treasured properties um, in, in Louisiana. Um, it, 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 we're, we're such an historic place. I don't know if there's, uh, if all the other states in the country have as many and care as much, but I know we do. And um, Brian uh, Davis, who is um, executive director of the Louisiana Trust for Historic Properties, um, uh, I have no doubt had a hand in determining this um, important church that has a, a very important cultural history, um, a place for the founding fathers of jazz who got together to perform. Um, and it is uh, now in, uh, as the headline in, the, in today's uh, paper says, in dire shape. So um, these, these endangered properties, I mean, I guess they often come to your attention when they are in dire shape. So it's a real challenge to have to come in kind of in the, in the last quarter and figure out how to um, you know, run that ball down the field. I don't usually like sports um, metaphors, but um, yeah. So tell me about this particular site and why it's important. And then let's talk about um, this designation of being endangered and, and how that works and how it helps. Sure, Gene. The, um, the uh, Holy Aid and Comfort Spiritual Church uh, there in New Orleans was nominated by Nathan Lott, the Preservation Resource Center of oh, New okay. Orleans. Um, also, the building is known as uh, Perseverance Benevolent and Mutual Aid Society Hall, and that was what it was uh, early on. So it was really a place in the community where um, jazz musicians, who really are the founders of that genre, uh, would would have a place to go and play and and be um, you know have gatherings and and learn from each other and really kind of build that um, that art form. Um, and so it really is. I mean, we often in preservation um, uh, get called in at the eleventh and a half hour uh, to try to uh, in our job, as I've, I've mentioned many times before, is really to kind of help connect the dots. You know, finding that. Um, Understanding the situation, uh, understanding the owners, uh, owners, the ownership sometimes, um, the building, its needs, uh, and it's what the community needs as well. And so it's kind of like putting all these pieces of a puzzle together. Uh, really, is kind of what we do in, in historic preservation around the uh, around the state and, and again around the country. Uh, I was very excited to be able to. Uh, it's very rare, also, for the National Trust uh, for Historic Preservation to list two um, sites so close together. Uh, and especially in in one state, um, uh, but we're uh, glad that both uh, came along. Uh, I think that with the um, Holy Aid and Comfort Spiritual Church, that it you know was damaged, uh, almost destroyed in Hurricane Ida, uh, and so the the front section has uh, remained, but the back half, as our back probably three quarters, uh, has collapsed. Uh, but there is a uh, fundraising effort going on, uh, supported in part by the National Trust. Uh, to see this uh, project rebuilt uh, and put back into service for the community and the church. Now, you mentioned uh, the other project in Louisiana, and I didn't actually um, mention that uh, yet. So, um, and that's, um, uh, um, 
I don't know if it's more challenging or not, but it, it's it's a biggie. It, it's where uh, some granaries are being proposed that would have a devastating impact, possibly on the um, neighboring uh, communities. So uh, let's talk about that one as well. Okay, and sorry to, to jump the gun on you there, uh, but that is uh, it. Actually, is a, probably a little more um, complex uh, situation there with the. Uh, West Bank of St. John the Baptist Parish uh, being listed as well as uh, to the uh, America's 11 most endangered historic places uh, list. This is an area that has uh, is actually known as the second German coast. So when John Law, we all in Louisiana history, all students in elementary and junior high uh, learn uh, the Louisiana history course, we learn about the German coast and um, early uh, settlers there in um, St. Charles, St. James, St. John Parish. Uh, and so this is known as the second um, German coast. It was um, settled first about 1724. Um, this whole area really is important in um, our nation, our state's history, our nation's history, but also in New Orleans history. If it wasn't for these German settlers uh, coming in and raising produce uh, to save, stave off a famine in New Orleans, the New Orleans may not exist where it is there or even at all uh, today. And so it really was their efforts that helped sustain this, uh, the early settlement of New Orleans. Um, and this area has remained agricultural, agrarian for the past 300 years. Um, you know, through times of enslavement later after the Germans uh, first got there, there was uh, of course the time of enslavement. Um, immediately following uh, emancipation, um, so there, there were free towns that were established, including Wallace, which is uh, there in um, West St. John Parish. And there's a proposed grain elevator by Greenfield, Louisiana, that it would be this, the same height as the Superdome and located about two football fields away from this community of 96% plus African-Americans that are all descendants. Most of them are descendants from formerly enslaved uh, people who were um, on, the, on the local plantations. And so this area has a rich culture. Uh, families are connected. I mean, this um, over the past 300 years and for industry, to come into this last stretch of the lower Mississippi River Valley and um, you know take over. Um, I, nobody really wants to live after you've, you've lived your entire life for generations uh, in a rural setting, having um, you know your yard uh, lit up uh, 24 hours a day with the lights, the noise, the dust, the pollution. Um, this this area will dissipate over the next 20 years if this is allowed to come in. And also not just with the grain, this grain elevator, but other industrial developments. Uh, there are other sites that are advertised for industrial development. And also the Port of South Louisiana is a major player in this um, um, fight to, to bring industry into West St. John. So uh, we're, we're seeing what we can do to help protect not just the historic, the archeological resources, but also the culture and the people that are there. And those go hand in glove. And I think a lot of time, uh, times when people who are not that engaged in historic preservation, hear you speak of it, and they think about, oh, you're just saving architecture. But no, what you just said is really critical that you're saving the culture and the community and the people that uh, live in that, the vicinity of or in the architecture that you're fighting to save. It's a, it's a hard struggle. It, you know, it is. Brian, I really, I, I congratulate you and thank you for taking it on because I've been involved in a couple of them. I worked on the Holy Cross uh, site, uh, which was, you know, for me kind of frankly devastating because we worked with the community with Tulane's help to come up with a, a plan that the community felt 
was a good de development plan. They didn't want to not develop the site after it ceased to be the campus for the, for the Holy Cross School. Um, they wanted to see it developed, but they wanted to see it developed in scale with the neighborhood. And um, there were some, I don't know if I, wish I should get into this, but there were some architects on the architectural review committee who thought it was just fine because you had the F. Edward A. Bear across the bayou uh, from the site. And um, that was kind of a crazy uh, reasoning. Um, but it, it's a struggle. It's a hard, it's a hard um, uh, fight in every case. And it's very political. And you're up against uh, some very powerful entities in many cases, uh, not so much in the case of the church. In that case, you're, you're up against the lack of power of the people who are involved with that church. But in the granaries, you're up against um, very powerful uh, industrial entities. So how do you... Uh, how do you survive the pressure? I have to ask because I mean I kind of had to, as I said, I had to exit the Holy Cross initiative at a certain point because I just felt like it, it, it the way it was going was just so disheartening. I think the difference with um, West St. John is the fact that we have uh, an amazing team, an adverse team of uh, parties that are all consultants um, in a uh, permit um, application review right now, um, and I, I've said that if I think. If more communities would have had this kind of team and knowledge base, um, you know, over the past 50, 60 years, I think the landscape of the lower Mississippi Valley would look a lot different because a lot of communities didn't, didn't think they had the uh, ability to or didn't know how to get a seat at the table um, to be able to speak up for themselves to fight uh, this. A lot of times if they say if, if industry is coming in, well, there's nothing we can do about it. And a lot of times these industries are coming in, they're promising jobs, they're promising all kinds of, of things and, um, you know, pie in the sky. And when they really get on the, you know, when it's all developed, um, then it, it really, in many cases, winds up being a, a lot a big shortfall from what was being promised. Yeah. Uh, but by that point, it's, it's really too late for the community. And so they're, they're the ones that are suffering uh, with uh, the pollution, with the noise, with the light, uh, with the intrusion to where, you know, even the value of their property, um, you know, being located next to an industrial plant like that, there are very few people that want to live that way. And so, you know, they, they take a tremendous hit um, in the, the value of their investments in their property. And also, um, you know, many of these um, uh, kind of uh, arrangements that are made between political uh, entities, uh, whether it's the parish, the state, whatever, to try to attract these industries, uh, for example, with the uh, Greenfield, Louisiana, there's a pilot program, um, payment in lieu of taxes, um, that would, that they did with the Port of South Louisiana, which is a governmental agency. And because it's a governmental agency and non-taxpaying, they can save, they'll be saving over $200 million in taxes that are um, ad valorem taxes that would go to St. John Parish over the next 30 years. And so think of what $200 million could do in a rural area like this. Um, and, and, you know, as far as roads and police and fire and other amenities for the people, uh, but evidently the, um, you know, having them located there and um, is, is more important to, uh, uh, to the Port of South Louisiana. Yeah, and um, so um, what's changed that has um, uh, given people uh, a more sense of confidence and, and an ability to take on these giants and and or in the in the case again of the church of of of, of taking on i mean I, i'm i'm sitting here looking at the the picture that's on the uh, front page of the 
um, metro section of today's paper. And I mean, you, you can see the whole back of the property is, is so thank you, Doug McCash, by the way, for calling attention to it in, in, the, uh, in the print uh, publication. But um, uh, what, what do you feel has occasioned this? I mean, I've seen pushback happening in the St. Tammany area over development plans. Um, I, I saw East Baton Rouge fight off um, a designation of an incentive that would have taken money from away from the school system. Um, I, I'm aware of the people in St. Bernard Parish who were horrified at the notion of this uh, big containerized shipping facility that the Port of New Orleans wants to push down river onto that the population there that is still struggling from uh, the effects of Katrina and um, a huge um, containerized shipping facility with the hundreds, some people say thousands of, of trucks coming and going all day long um, is another instance of where the community is pushing back. Um, we'll see whether that one is successful. That one again is yeah. up against some very powerful interests. I think that just knowing the rules um, it really is, is very, this is the first step. Uh, and so if you don't know, uh, talk with folks. Uh, if you're another community that may be threatened uh, having something like this, um, you know, coming up on you, uh, talk with folks about, you know, how can we, what are our options? Um, with this, the uh, location close to um, two, national, two nationally um, uh, designated uh, properties, Whitney Plantation Historic District and Evergreen National Historic Landmark, um, Evergreen Plantation National Historic Landmark, that called into, they were close enough to where they, they called into um, uh, effect basically a Section 106 review. And that's triggered if $1 of federal funds is being used, whether that's on a permit uh, or um, any kind of federal funds are, are being um, uh, requ you know, required for the, for the project. And so with that, we were able to, um, to come in and, and give our um, consulting status uh, of what the potential impacts are. You know, what is the area of potential impact? Uh, what, is the, um, you know, what are some of the concerns that could impact these historic resources of a national importance? Um, you know, in the area. So that's really how we've gotten to the table. Um, otherwise, you know, it, it, we would have had, you know, other, other means, but definitely not, um, not as, as um, quick to be able to, to speak up for that. So um, again, so, we don't, uh, go ahead. No, well, I, I just want you to explain that to me just a little bit more. I kind of get the picture, but when you talk about 106, section 106, tell me, mm -hmm. I don't know what that means. Sure. Section 106 is of the National Preservation uh, Act, and it basically gives a uh, chance uh, when uh, federal funds are being used, they want to know if it's going to have an impact to uh, a historic property of uh, national significance, uh, so for example, being listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And so uh, that basically has a uh, public notice um, to folks uh, in the community, uh, other preservation uh, you know, um, consultants, uh, to say uh, even the state government, uh, state division of historic preservation, to all come together and say, okay, here's the um, here's the resource, uh, the historic designated proper, property. Uh, here's the potential. Here's the proposed uh, project. Is this going to work together? Is this going to be um, um, have an adverse effect on the property, or uh, is there some way to mitigate that? Or you know, what what kind of middle ground or um, is it just going to be so egregious that, um, you know, that they could potentially deny a permit for it? 
So this is similar to the EIS statements that are involved with um, other kinds of projects that the Army Corps, for example, has to uh, play a role in evaluating. Um, you have to prove uh, that the environmental impact Correct. is negative and it doesn't necessarily involve historic properties, but just literally land uh, use in waterways. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in other ways. Um, but it sounds like uh, from what you just said, it, it, when you talk about knowing the rules, it seems like one of the first rules, uh, in a sense, is um, whether a property is on the historic uh, list, uh, the National Historic List or not. Explain that to me a little bit and to my audience. Sure, sure. No, it's, it's a process. Uh, basically, it was, again, the National Preservation Act of 1966 allowed for a the creation of a national register that is um, the Secretary of the Interior um, is the, um, and yeah, the um, um, National Register Keeper. Uh, and it's basically the, the, the uh, federal government's list of the places of importance, uh, either historically, architecturally, culturally, archeologically, um, that are, are important to our, um, to our history as a nation. And so this is a growing list. Uh, buildings that are, are sites that are 50 years old or older, uh, are eligible. So we're now looking at 1973 and before that still retain most of their historic character or of a certain uh, period of significance. Um, each one of these has a, a declared period of significance. Um, these range from a small building or a um, archaeological site up to a large uh, National Register district, which New Orleans has many of. So um, that kind of reminds me of another um issue that I'm concerned about and interested in, and that is um, essentially um, how are uh, how are we thinking about um, uh, not just uh, historic and archaeological uh, projects, but again, uh, broader land use questions. And um, uh, again, how, how do we encourage people to feel like they have the ability to, as you said, have a voice in these in these situations so uh, knowing first of all if something is on the national register list is important uh, what would you say is next after that you said what are the options um so what what are the options for development would that an option be like where else can a granary go besides that location is, is it, that mean by an alternative or is it the size of it or or just it could be it could be about? uh setbacks away from um you know communities it could be um you know, screening, it could be alternate locations, um, it could be um, any of those. I think one of the first steps is understanding um, the project and, you know, the um, the historic resource and seeing how those are going to be impacted and also what the project is going to, what kind of permits uh, they may need that involve the um, uh, federal uh, government. Um, you know, in this case, it was the uh, dredging of a um, uh, port terminal there for the uh, the grain elevator uh, that that you know initiated the the section 106 review as part of the uh, clean waterways. Oh, that's what that's I say. Okay, um, okay. So another um, thing that I've been involved in and concerned about may or may not have any uh, relevance to the kind of thing you're talking because you're talking about basically. Arch still architectural properties, even if um, uh, they mainly focus on historic uh, uh, importance um, and, and the impact on uh, people in the area. But um, 
What about something like um, something I'm concerned about, and that is noise and uh, particularly loud music. In New Orleans, of course, we love our marching bands and we love our loud music out in the streets and we're in favor of that. But in some cases in residential neighborhoods, it can be really intrusive on neighbors. Is Does that come in any way under your uh, mantle? I, I don't know that it would. Um, I think that it's um, it's more of a local zoning ordinance uh, and local enforcement um, in that case, um, where you know between the hours of, and it really is again uh, being able to enforce it, uh, having the the local uh, um, you know police force to be able to to make sure that it's it's followed, or some method of um, or some method like that. So I think where we it gets. Um, um, it's more of a public nuisance at that point, but if it starts to, I mean, sometimes vibrations like from cruise ships or other things like that can have, or even uh, heavy traffic uh, can have a detrimental effect on mortar and historic buildings. That's where it kind of steps across the line. Right, exactly. Um, so what's your perception of, of the trend and, and where we're going? And um, what do you see as, um, something that we all should be aware of uh, in, in terms of process and what we want to uh, fight for. So I get a lot of mail from people who are lobbying uh, um, uh, on, on things that are happening in the legislature. And um, it, it seems like there's just so many things to uh, be wary of and deal with. But, um, and as I said, there, there is signs of, of, of more communities feeling empowered to take on um, forces that seem um, uh, uh, to be indomitable, but they can really have an impact on. What, what's your sense of how things are going and, and what do you see coming up? Um, and what, what should we be aware of that will affect this whole process? I think that really uh, what I'm seeing in preservation right now um, over the past several years is a diversification of the stories that are being told and uh, the, um, the importance being shared uh, and examined. I mean, we're really rewriting some of the our understanding uh, and really just starting to rewrite some of our um, our history and our understanding of uh, parts of our, our past. Um, so that's another reason why this West St. John area is so important is because of not just the uh, architectural record, but also the archaeological record uh, from, um, you know, areas of enslavement to maroon settlements back in the, um, the swamps, um, you know, when, um, you know, things free people of color, I mean, it's really um, other uh, nationalities that, that were immigrants here and, and how they all um, uh, played in. I think for so many years, our um, you know, places of importance were um, traditionally, uh, you know, as, as evidenced by the National Register, a lot of those places were plantation houses or, um, you know, prosperous uh, white um, men. And so I think there's a, a really a, a shift to try to uh, look at those underrepresented communities. Uh, I know the National Park Service has several grants to help, um, you know, research and nominate pro properties of um, or sites that are uh, representative of, of so far underrepresented communities from um, the importance of women to LGBTQ to, uh, you know, BIPOC communities to other other um, groups and how they've really all played a part of this, um, uh, you know, this experiment that we hope will survive the current uh, very um, uh, intense um, divisions in our country. Absolutely. 
And, Absolutely. Uh, so, well, so I think uh, diversity is really the the kind of keyword here, and that we're, we're the, the door is open for that, and we really want to hear those stories and and have those represented as well as part of our national history. So, if if somebody uh, has an idea for um, a diverse site, property, community, edifice, um, or just land, uh, literally, um, it, it could be a question of, of protecting um, natural land. Um, what do they do? Who should they call? Do they call Brian? <laughs> they, they can call us. I mean, if it's in New Orleans, I mean, Danielle Del Sol and her team at the Preservation Resource Center of New Orleans are the experts. We work very closely with them. Um, I mean, we work um, with, a, we have what's called a revolving fund um, um, program. And it's a real estate program that I was able to, um, I grew up here in, in Northeast Louisiana and moved off and worked for the past 20 years in preservation organizations working with preservation easements. And these are legal attachment to the deed. And so if there's a uh, concern that, um, you know, either you're selling your property that you've loved or it's been in your family for many generations, um, but you're, you know, want to make sure that the future owner is going to respect it and, and take care of it, um, you can actually donate a preservation easement to us. Uh, and this is a legal attachment that will actually look after it, whoever the owner is in the future. So that's that's one and way to that easement is the entire property or part of it or either. It, it, it's all it varies by property. Uh, typically, it's the land. If you especially if you have uh, outbuildings or other other uh, you know features, archaeological features, things like that, and you can basically the owner is the one that sets that. Uh, the parameters of that easement. It can be just the outside. It can be you know include the interior. Uh, whatever the important uh, historic character defining parts of that uh, property. That's also just like a, a land trust. Um, um, you know, um, it's a conservation servitude is a legal term in Louisiana, but it's better known uh, in the preservation world as a preservation easement. A preservation easement. Well, you just rang my bell big time. <laughs> I have a big old house on Esplanade Avenue that we bought back in the day and all that uh, blood sweat and tears that went into it and you don't want it to be torn down after in the future yeah yeah and I, or or a, a polluted with uh and and i'm i'm partially myself to blame so i know how easily it can happen when we first moved into this house um there was a lot of architectural detail that for somebody coming from a very contemporary residents at an apartment in, in, in Manhattan seemed, su, su, what's the word, superfluous to me. And so I said, oh, take out that mantle. <laughs> take take out that wainscoting. Take out that, um, I don't know what you call the, uh, the, the framing of windows. Oh my God. And my husband listened to me, unfortunately. <laughs> So I know how easy it is for folks to feel like they want to put their um, aesthetic stamp on on something. But um, what you're saying is also very important to me as a way of um, not only uh, saving what's here, but maybe just saving it all together. It, it is. So I guess the, the, the point that. I answer to your question is reach out to us, you know, reach out to a preservation group, whether it's us, whether it's the Preservation Resource Center of New Orleans, uh, and just ask, you know, here's that's really what we do is help connect the dots. Uh, we under, try to understand the situation. I cover all 64 parishes, um, but it's it's um, you know really just understanding, getting out there and understanding the property, what surrounds it, the situation with the owner, their their wishes, and trying to come up with a uh, solve this puzzle that's going to help the property um, continue into the future. 
Brian, I, I, I either hate to tell you this or I love to tell you this, but you will be hearing from me. <laughs> Great, thank you. <laughs> um, definitely, because uh, I, I've got some ideas based on our conversation. You've been so helpful, and um, you know, especially since we're dealing at such a kind of ABCs level of the conversation. And I appreciate your patience and and uh, digging in with us. Um, please keep us. Um, uh, our newsletter is called News N Period E Period W Period S Period with a little compass on it. And Crosstown Conversations is the name of our radio show. Um, uh, you have my email now, so um, please uh, keep us apprised of things that are coming up that uh, you want to make sure the public knows about. We love uh, really Great. trying to shine some light on these issues. Great. I'll actually be down there at Esplanade uh, coming down on Friday. I'm going to take a look at a Rosenwald School over at uh, Cutoff. And then uh, we have that announcement, a press event on Saturday in St. John the Baptist Parish. So. I, I uh, stay there at uh, Esplanade and Royal uh, when I'm down there, luckily by the, oh, do you? Uh, uh -huh. the, the stream family's uh, place there. Okay. So um, oh, yeah. it's yeah. a great site. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Important so, site too. Very yeah. much. Well, Brian, thank you so much and um, keep on keeping on. All right. Thanks, Gene. And let me know anytime you need anything. Thanks so much. Thank okay. you. And Bye -bye. good luck to um, Reverend Harold Lewis. Just so the folks listening to this know um, the hero of the church in the seventh ward, and it's called the Holy Aid and Comfort Spiritual Church of Eternal Life. And um, I think they've got a, a little bit of a GoFundMe uh, program going. So people just, uh, I'll bet you if you just go um, into Google and you Google that church, I'm going to say it one more time, Holy Aid and Comfort Spiritual Church of Eternal Life. What a name. I love it. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks, Jean. Take care. Bye. Bye, -bye. phone. She's the executive director of Unity, which has been working for quite some time now on um, issues regarding homelessness um, and help more specifically for the homeless in our um, city. She has a very deep uh, legal background, uh, which I was actually fascinated about. We'll have to talk more about that at another time. I notice you do work with um, on disability issues and my husband was in a really bad accident in the fall, and I need to check in with you about things and get some uh, thoughts from you. But oh, we're I'm sorry to, to hear talk that. About, yeah, well, you know, things happen. So um, I think that uh, it was disheartening for me, of course, to read that after substantial and probably um, really um, highly recognized progress in reducing the homeless population in the city we've kind of taken a dive. And um, uh, the numbers are, are quite staggering. I'm gonna let you emphasize the ones that you uh, feel are really critical, but um, every single one of them um, was, was uh, kind of, it was really concerning. And I think 
most of us around the city have a sense, have a you, you get a, a, a kind of um, since people are on the street, um, you, you start to uh, have this kind of uh, side view um, uh, of, of what's going on. And I live on Esplanade Avenue and I see a lot of homeless people on Esplanade Avenue. I'm not sure why. I have a feeling there's some facilities near us um, or some non-facilities, just open space where um, some of the homeless are, are um, encamping. But um, it has really troubled me to see uh, people, and they're so they always look so um, quite honestly down um, at the mouth, um, and and so you just your your heart kind of breaks every time you see one of them. And yeah, um, so so tell me what's going on? How, how, why why the turnaround? Well, I mean, this is a unfortunately a national trend. It, it oh, it's a national trend that of growing homelessness that started in 2016 is where you start to see the data change nationwide and uh, homelessness start to increase. We've been able to pretty much counter that here in New Orleans and Jefferson Parish, um, but uh, we are now at the point where you know we we are finding it very difficult to counter that national trend. Things got uh, you know because of the pandemic resources. Uh, we were able to make a lot of progress during the first two years of the pandemic and actually reduce street homelessness dramatically. Um, but in the past year, um, the numbers are back up uh, to where they were before the pandemic started, despite all of the work that we did. Um, we took a thousand, more than a thousand people off the street, placed them in hotels and placed 75% of them uh, in permanent housing. So for the most part, these are new people. These are people who are mostly from our community, but weren't on the street before, or at least not at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, what the pandemic did was, unfortunately, uh, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. Um, that's been a trend around the nation for the last uh, many years, but it got you know dramatically so during the pandemic. And uh, so we're seeing that we're seeing because of inflation um, and, you know, most, most of that is connected to the pandemic. We've seen rents soar so that um, the fair market rent for a one bedroom apartment in New Orleans is now over a thousand dollars a month. And we're a city it wasn't that, that long has ago. A, it wasn't that long ago that a one bedroom apartment was was more in the five hundred dollar range. Yes, exactly. I mean, this used to be, you know, a city where it was kind of easy to get along. Uh, but, you know, despite the fact that we had a lot of poverty. Um, but now, you know, you consider that more than a quarter of the people of New Orleans are under the poverty line. How in the world are people, you know, paying rents like that? And for a two bedroom apartment, it's much more than that. So, you know, these are just rents that are completely outrageous um, and beyond the capacity of uh, low-income people to pay. So when you're talking about, you know, people with disabilities who are dependent on SSI or haven't gotten their SSI yet, when you're talking about families that, um, you know, the wage earner is making minimum wage or not much above minimum wage, there's just absolutely no way that people can um, pay these kinds of rent. So that's the major reason for the increase in homelessness here and around the country. Um, a lot of times 
we tend to focus on the fact that a lot of homeless people have disabilities and think of that as the cause of homelessness, but that doesn't really explain homelessness on a macro level on, you know, when you're looking at um, the studies that show why one city has a higher rate of homelessness than another city, it's not because one city has a higher rate of mental illness or substance use, actually. It all comes down to, and there's been numerous studies that have looked at, you know, literally dozens of factors of possible factors. And, and what they have found is that there's only one factor that really explains why one city's rate of homelessness is higher than another. And it's the degree to which a city has a shortage, an acute shortage of affordable rental housing. So then the fact that many of the people who fall into homelessness are people with specific vulnerabilities like mental illness, physical illness, substance use disorders, uh, histories of domestic violence, uh, the experience of housing discrimination or other kinds of discrimination, employment discrimination, those really go to the individual vulnerabilities that explain, you know, who's most, if there's a shortage of apartments, who's most likely to miss out? It's kind of like a tragic game of musical chairs. If there's not enough chairs, Who's going who's gonna to not get a chair? It's going to be the person who couldn't get there fast enough, the one that was being discriminated against, you know, the one that was being beaten. You know, um, it's the one that had, you know, something bad happen to them that, that makes them more uh, vulnerable to this. But someone is going to get left out when you've got an acute shortage of affordable rental housing. Can I ask you a question that uh, has occurred to me um, over time? Um, was there always, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I hate to say how old I am, I, I think I won't, but um, I, I could just, I could say that I grew up in the 50s, and um, I, if we just didn't, you didn't hear talk about the homeless, but my question is, were they always there? And of course, during the Depression, you have the images of people on the on the trains and on uh, bread lines and so on. But yeah. was, was that homelessness always there, or has the availability of affordable housing primarily gotten so much worse that homelessness is now um, just uh, at, a, at a totally different level and a totally different dimension? Yes, you're really getting at something important. I mean, if you if you were to look at an actual paper dictionary, and you and I are both old enough to know what those look like, young younger people may not have ever seen one. But if you if you get a dictionary from the 1970s, you won't find the word homeless in the dictionary. And it's not that there weren't some people who were homeless, but there weren't enough of them for there to be a word to describe that. Um, you know, so you, you might, you might have, you know, some people who were living outside, but it wasn't any substantial numbers. And all that started to change in the 1980s. You had kind of the perfect storm of three things happening at once in the 80s that really contributed to there being noticeable homelessness for the first time, really in our nation. And that was, uh, the combination of, 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 um, the fact that, uh, the nation's investment in affordable rental housing uh, pretty much uh, fell off um, in the 1970s. There were, you know, 
the the uh, U.S. Housing Act was passed in the 30s and promised a home for every American, um, there was substantial investment in that, never enough to really create that for every American. But um, starting in the 1970s, uh, Congress just decided to really stop investing in that. And so there were affordable rental uh, rental uh, apartments that were privately owned uh, but had used federal resources to develop and sustain them. And they all have a, a term where they have to be kept affordable um, after the funds are received. And when those uh, timed out, Congress did not extend a lot of that. So we started having a major fall off in the supply of affordable rental housing, um, starting in the 1970s and 80s. And then so we're talking about we're we're talking about the Reagan administration, the Nixon yes. administration. Yes, and so that so that's the other thing. So well, it started even before the Reagan administration, but then it it you know you started really seeing more of it uh, during the Reagan administration, coupled down coupled with the uh, trickle down. Uh, policies of the of the Reagan administration, in which you know you had dramatic tax cuts for um, you know wealthy people, and then all that was supposed to trickle down to the poor, which didn't pan out, um, and so that never happened. And so you started seeing a lot of um, you know disparity between more more of a gap between the rich and the poor. And then the third thing that was happening at the same time was that starting in the 1970s there were uh, some Supreme Court decisions that said that you could no longer, uh, you could no longer uh, institutionalize people with mental illness uh, if they weren't a danger to themselves or others. And I think that decision was the right decision, um, but it always assumed that there was going to be community-based care and community-based housing uh, for people with um, serious mental illness. Um, and that never happened. So a lot of people with severe mental illness were just dumped out on the street. And then what also happened, and this happened over a, a period of decades, was that gradually the um, the uh, medical policies around the care for people with mental illness got more and more restrictive so that today, it's practically impossible to um, commit somebody who has mental illness um, in many, many cities around the country. Um, if you do succeed in getting people committed, even when they meet the criteria for being danger to themselves or others, they're typically dumped out back out on the street after three days and there hasn't been enough time to stabilize them. Um, you know, it would be completely consistent with the Supreme Court decision to find that when somebody needs to be hospitalized, that you would provide them with the hospitalization and you would, um, you know, you would keep them hospitalized until they were stabilized. Um, but that unfortunately, you know, both for legal reasons as well as me just the medical policy has changed. Um, you know, we don't really provide that kind of care for people who really need the help. So unfortunately, those people are just left on the street literally to die and then become, you know, the permanent wards of the homeless system. And, you know, at any given time, Unity and our member organizations, we are permanently housing um, about 4,000 people at any given time. 
Those are people who are rescued out of homelessness months and years ago and sometimes decades ago. And in many cases, there are permanent clients. Those are those are people who used to be kept in mental institutions. They're now our permanent clients. And that's why, unless we're given new money every year, we can't make headway in who's homeless today because our resources are already taken up by the people that we rescued last month, last year, five years ago, ten years ago. Um, you know, people have very complex medical, mental health, and physical health problems, and you know, in most cases, are going to need to be our our very long term clients. Wow, it's it's really uh, it's it's really as many perfect storms as we're experiencing in the climate change uh, world. And I, I'll bet you anything, and, and I haven't thought about this before, but it just came out of my mouth. Climate change is probably another factor um, that's affecting this and, and will increasingly as we have these more devastating storms that wipe out. For example, I mean, yeah. our most recent Ida storm, we haven't recovered from Ida. And I'll bet you anything right. that's another cause for homelessness. Yes. I mean, you are, Jeannie, you are just really, uh, pinpointing a lot of um, a lot of important points here um, we we have been affected in in New Orleans and in South Louisiana not just by the pandemic not just by the pandemic inflation um, not just by the gap between the rich and the poor that is nationwide but you know I think it's particularly an issue in New Orleans but we've also been affected by um, rents going up, and apartments going off the market because of Ida and because of insurers uh, jacking up insurance rates, which landlords, you know, in many cases, landlords have no choice but to pass those on. Um, you know, a lot of our landlords are mom and pops, and um, they don't they don't have a double of a double house. Yeah, yeah, they can't they 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 can't pay. You know, they they're going to have to charge more. If their insurance goes way up, um, they're not going to be able to eat that. And um, you know, the the big the big um, rental companies, to the extent that there are that, and there are some, you know, they're they're not likely to just um, you know want to want to not pass that on either. So you know, that's been an enormous factor in why our rents have jumped up so much. We saw when we came back from Ida. Um, when, when everybody came back from Ida, that's when you really saw the rents jump. Hmm. Yep. I'm not surprised. Oh, so, um, okay. Um, I'm very So you want to hear some good news? I was just about you to say, hear some good I'm news very solutions oriented. And so yeah. let me hear something about, um, I, I know that you're thinking creatively about this also. And um, what, what's, what's on the, uh, what's on the burner is, burners as, as possible um, ways to mitigate this situation? Well, first of all, I mean, the, the one piece of just general good news to keep in mind is that there have been numerous studies that have shown that the cost of keeping somebody homeless is actually enormous for society because um, not only is there, you know, terrible suffering happening for the person who's experiencing homelessness, but um, it actually is costing the taxpayers money because that person, their health deteriorates while they're on the street. They tend to be in and out of 
public hospital emergency rooms, which cost the taxpayers a lot of money. In addition to that, um, they tend to get arrested for things that wouldn't even be relevant if they were housed. Um, things like uh, public urination, where you're supposed to pee if you don't have a place to live. Um, you know, obstructing the sidewalk. You can't help but obstruct the sidewalk if you're, you know, forced to use the sidewalk as your pillow in your bed. Um, so I have seen that as, a, as an attorney representing people, just the enormous cost of, of uh, you know, people uh, being on the street and what that costs the taxpayers. And in contrast, we know what works to end people's homelessness, and it is rental assistance combined with case management. It's not enough just to provide somebody with an apartment, but they need a case manager, at least initially. Um, and for the people that I was talking about earlier who have you know, severe mental illness or other behavioral health issues, you know, they're going to need that rent assistance and case management for a long period of time. But that actually works out to being cost-effective compared to the cost of keeping the person homelessness. So well, homeless. So it's yeah. it's actually there there are proven solutions and they're cost effective. That's the good news. And then the other piece of really bright news for New Orleans is that um, the community banded together last fall. I'm talking about the medical community, the business community, uh, governmental agencies, nonprofits, people who were home who are homeless helped us with this. And we all, in philanthropy, we all work together. We put together a really strong uh, proposal in a federal competition, a very, very heated competition. It was very difficult to get, and we were selected. Um, so we have now resources coming down this summer um, that will be enough to take 420 people off the street and permanently house them with case management services. Um, and these are, you know, the people who have the most severe illnesses, the people who, uh, you know, need the help the most, um, and they will get, you know, the top priority. So that that will be an enormous help. And the other good news is that um, it is expected that that will then become an annually recurring um, uh, grant that we can get renewed so that we can keep those people housed right. um, for the long term. So that's that's good news too. So, we, but but what what isn't such good news is that the basic factor that's driving people into homelessness every day who weren't homeless the night before that those factors I don't see much progress being made on um, because that is the shortage of affordable rental housing, and we need to get really serious about doing much more. You know, to create affordable rental housing. You know, if we don't, we're looking at ourselves becoming like California, where I don't know if you've been to California or the West Coast recently, but, you know, pretty much every city on the West Coast has just unbelievable rates of homelessness, of people sleeping on the street. Even small towns in California do. And, you know, that's what happens when you just let it just spiral out of control until you know, you're finally forced to do something. Are we going to wait until till it gets that bad? Or are we going to just say that we're going to have a policy of creating X number of affordable rental um, apartments every 
year in order to get at this problem. We can't just um, push, you know, all low-income people out of their housing and then expect that we're not going to have homelessness. I'm convinced that there is a counter trend right now where more citizens groups are coming together and and not assuming that you cannot do something about a problem that is out there that you tend to think is out of your control so i just had a conversation the other person who will be on the show with uh with you this friday at noon on wbok um is uh, brian um uh i'm not gonna remember his last name real quickly because i have such a name phobia brian davis with the uh, um, uh louisiana trust for um historic Pre um, preservation who was uh, uh, essentially talking about um, the needs for, um, you know, protecting our, our lands, our historic properties and our communities yeah. uh, from some of the, you know, the, of course, the, the Cancer Alley um, um, businesses that have been really plundering our, our coast for so long. Uh, but there's more resistance to that now than ever. And it is be and it's because, People do feel, I think, in part some desperation, but also are are less intimidated um, by. I think you know if you know, this, I, lately I've been in my newsletters. I don't know if you get my newsletters, but I've been talking a lot about how when things get bad enough, they have to get better because people just say, "Oh my God, we just can't live with this," and so there is uh, the swing of the pendulum, and I. Mm -hmm. I often cite the case of the two black representatives who got pushed out of the legislature in Kentucky, was it, um, or Tennessee? Which one? <laughs> it's also. Uh, I thought it was Nebraska. Was it? No, 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 I no. Talking about the two um, black representatives. Oh no, you're right. It was Tennessee. Right. It was Tennessee. Tennessee. Okay, so um, you know uh, that was so. Nebraska was something else. It, it, but it was it was great in the sense of calling. Uh, of, of pulling back the curtain, I, I often say, it just, it really yeah. revealed something that was going on and, and it forced a, a change and an attitude and, and, and of course um, the treatment of those guys. So hopefully, um, hopefully there is this more collaborative energy, this a, a more of an inclination to feel like government is, is so messed up with these, these very um, virulent politics that we just have to, step up and do what we can do and that's what you're doing and i appreciate that you're doing it and you will be in touch with me as things go forward and make sure that we can tell a story that needs to be told right great well it was great talking to you uh gene i really really enjoyed our conversation and i also uh, the one thing i didn't get to and we don't have time for in this conversation but it's how people just the average citizen can help you know you see you see somebody walking down the street Who's, who's totally dispirited, you're, you're really not comfortable with approaching that person because you have no idea what's going on. But there are, are ways that we can help and um, maybe we should have another conversation sooner than later about how an individual um, can, or, or a family um, can, can actually step in and help. I think that's- Well, uh, people something. can go, go People can go to our website at unitygno, U-N-I-T-Y-G-N-O.org. 
And you can see a list of our member organizations. You can volunteer for Unity or any of our member organizations. Just about every organization in town that's working on this issue is part of our collaborative. And they all need volunteers, and they all need donations. Unity, G-N-O. Unity, U-N-I-T-Y-G-N-O.org is our website. Thank you. Thank you so much for everything you do, Martha. Thank you so much, Jean. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.